Welcome to Art Scoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. We have been theater for so long, attending an evening sale where the big ticket items sell, where you're sitting next to someone else and you've got 1,200 people in a room bidding and the excitement of that. I just don't know that that's coming back in that form. So we have to be able to offer the digital alternative that is you know, equally exciting. That's Nina Del Rio, Vice Chairman Americas at Sotheby's, who has led its museum, private, and corporate art services since 2004. Under her direction, Sotheby's has overseen the vast majority of institutional and corporate collections to have come to market over the past decade. In 2020, she also assumed leadership of Sotheby's Advisory, which provides bespoke collection strategies to individuals, institutions, and corporations. She began her career with Sotheby's as an intern in 1988, and after a brief hiatus publishing prints in the Marlboro Gallery in New York, she returned to Sotheby's in 1995 to become director of the Contemporary Prints Department. Starting in 1999, she helped to launch Sotheby's online auction platform, managing Sotheby's strategic partnerships with Amazon and eBay. She graduated cum laude from Tufts University with a BA in Art History and Political Science. She attended the Museum Studies program at the École du Louvre in Paris, after which she worked at PS1 in Long Island City, New York. Nina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Nice to hear your voice, Max. Same here, Nina. And this opportunity today is really a chance to delve into the worlds of auctions and private sales for our listeners. I read in the art newspaper recently that global art and antique sales reportedly shrank by 22% to about $50 billion last year, the biggest dip since the 2009 recession. Could you tell us a bit about how Sotheby's has been weathering this past year? Yes, happy to. And in fact, it's amazing how quickly these statistics both circulate and I think are also sort of misperceived because in fact, the 22% drop is really a, a drop in volume and not mm -hmm. a drop in appetite or the performance of sales. And in fact, if you look at the sales across lots of different channels, Sotheby's, Phillips, Christie's, they've actually performed extremely well. But let's unpack it a little bit because in fact, yes, volume is down. And a year ago, and it was literally us on March 13th, Friday the 13th, and everyone remembers it that way, huddled mm -hmm. on the 10th floor at Sotheby's, looking at each other saying, oh gosh, I think we, we should probably close the building next week. This is getting sort of serious, but we have an auction on Monday, so let's keep it open just that day. And in fact, we had a live auction, nobody showed up, and the auction mm -hmm. exceeded expectations. It was a moment for everybody, the entire world, but it was a moment for us in particular because for no reason other than we had been working on our technology platform for a few years prior to that, mm -hmm. were we able to transition our sale platform to a digital platform almost immediately. So we actually didn't cancel sales. It was like putting a blindfold on and jumping off a cliff, but we did it with some good technology behind us. And so it allowed us to understand what was going on in the market when other colleagues of ours, galleries, art fairs, other auction houses actually pressed the pause button, which of course was the responsible thing to do. We couldn't convene people in person. We quickly changed the way that we conduct our sales to digital sales. We kept them going and it allowed us to see in very real time who was participating in the market. Our sales were doing very well and we, we kept these first sales to sort of mid-season, no 
huge numbers up front. We inched up, certainly in price, and we learned that buyers are still participating. They're waiting for good property on the market. But what you saw was a lot of sellers say, oh my God, the world just turned upside down. I'm not going to sell right now. You know, I remember getting calls from buyers saying, okay, I'm interested in this. If, you know, I'm going to pay 50 cents on the dollar, go get me the fire sale. But in fact, we saw very few fire sales. We saw sellers holding back. If you look at the big drivers of the market, which are the big estates, many of them who were in the process of getting organized said, we're going to pause right now. And in fact, we postponed our sales, but we kept our two big estates in place. And I think because, Max, we had kept all of our auctions going in a digital format, we threw printed catalogs out the window pretty much. We, I mean, and it took us so long to discover this. I don't know how. Actually, printed catalogs are not as effective as digital tools where we can, you know, which are much more beautiful, interactive, where you can jump around with greater ease. In fact, we started communicating with our clients in a more digital way and mm-hmm. investing a lot in how we actually show works on screen. So long story, we get to the very big spring sales, which we postpone by a month. We keep our estates in place and they go bananas because buyers right. are so hungry that the great property has a huge amount of competition. At the same time, we are selling privately in a way with a swiftness at huge numbers in a way that we just haven't ever seen. We increased our private sales by 50%. And that's of interest, I think, to a lot of people to understand how it is that a work of art finds its way to a private sale versus auction. How does that decision get made? The decision is always first and foremost, where would the work perform best? And there are some works that have a very wide appeal and in fact cross lots of these barriers that we like to put in place, which are collecting areas, when in fact some works are very classic, would appeal to a certain buyer base, and you tend to know who those buyers are. And it's good to kind of whiteboard private sales versus auction, but a work that has a very wide appeal a global appeal, cuts across collecting areas, that's probably a work for auction because it's very hard to demonstrate whether you're maximizing the value of that work until you put it into the public marketplace. But there are other works where you can actually have a little bit more control over the price process where expectation is competition in the open market is going to be a little tepid. There's a set number of buyers and it's really better to start at a more ambitious number and whittle down from that, meaning expect some negotiation, rather than putting something at auction where auction estimates need to be attractive, yes, realistic, but attractive. And generally, the way to do well is to incite competition. But where competition is thinner, if a work is particular, private sale is a better model. I will also say some buyers, especially at the very high level, do not want to compete in the open market. And they would rather pay a premium to know, okay, this work is being offered to me. This is a very important opportunity. I'm going to pay a little bit more to secure it right this second so that I don't have to compete. I don't have to go into the uncertainty of auction. And that at the higher numbers is a very big factor. And during this last year, there was a somewhat greater comfort level 
participating at the high end of the market through private sale, which I think fueled our private sales enormously. How would you say the trend is in private sales versus auctions? I would say, Max, in the last year, at the very high price points, buyers, I think, have had a greater comfort buying privately than at auction. The auctions have been very strong. And while there have been high level works, you'll see up in the high eight figures, low nine figures, those have been a little bit absent in the market. And I think by and large, there have been more private sales at those price ranges. The air gets thinner. There are fewer buyers who participate. I think many buyers at that price point prefer not to compete in the open market and would pay a premium to actually confirm a sale and have that certainty. I will say it's not a hard and fast rule. One of the amazing moments was during our sale last June when we sold the Francis Bacon triptych upwards of 75 million, where one buyer was on the phone and the other one was clicking the bid button on their screen. And so there was competition. This is a new marketplace. I would say that there is much more activity than people can see. So as we look at those reports, which tell you that the market's down by 22%, it just takes a little bit of unpacking. In fact, the appetite's there, the buying activity is there, the volume is down. Is the profile of buyers changing? So we've learned a few really interesting statistics during this time. And again, I'm like, how did it take us so long to get here? Like catalogs and who's participating in our sales? When in fact, one part of the market, and this is probably in the lower end as we've widened what we've offered and expanded what we would call luxury goods, all that really means is wine and watches and jewelry. You know, we've leaned much more heavily into online sales, but also sort of a buy now format. So the transaction online should be as simple, as transparent, as easy as it is to go and buy something on Amazon. No, it's not the same thing. You're buying something more rarefied with us but that should be an easy transaction. And in fact, the democratization of the online platform has brought in between 20 and 30% of new buyers in more reasonable price points per sale, but also a demographic that's skewing younger. That's one thing we've learned. The other thing we've learned, and I think this is more us guessing what's happening, is our buyers who generally participate in the market at a very high level, who are often looking at this sort of more traditional fine art painting and sculpture at high price points, they were home, they were not traveling, they were on screens, and they started participating more in our object sales, in our mid-season sales. And we saw activity from traditional buyers in markets where they had never actually participated. And I think what it reminded us of is that collectors, and I, I don't always like to use that word, but a collector who's really living with art in a committed way is buying silver, is buying objects, is buying 20th century design, is potentially buying watches. And that ramped up in a way that we hadn't seen before. You've made some changes. You've got a new CEO in the fall of 2019, Charlie Stewart, who was a former investment banker at Morgan Stanley. He's been outspoken about the digital platform being one he's encouraged. What are some of the most notable changes since he took the reins? I think what's amazing is I look back, Charlie's a really good guy. And he came in with two other people, you know, our owner, Patrick Drahi, and then another man called Jean-Luc Barabi, who is essentially our CFO. And they had 
worked together previously, and they had a very clear set of initiatives that they wanted to push forward. Of course, no one knowing that we were going to go into a pandemic. I think what's been very helpful is the consistency of vision throughout this process. So Charlie and Patrick were always committed to expanding Sotheby's digital presence, making online sales easier, simpler, going in that direction. I think they believe that there's a whole lot of scaling to be done, especially in the luxury, you know, sort of the not fine art market. But that vision, that commitment was tested immediately. And we had to ramp it up, of course, when everything turned on its head. Their investment in our digital platform, you know, we hired this fantastic guy from Amazon who has really given us the clarity of both how do we move forward, but from a mechanic standpoint, all the back end, it's organized in a much cleaner way. So it actually is happening. We also have focused intensively on our presence in Asia, where we've had a strength for a long time, but that's really buoyed right now. And activity in Asia has been stronger than ever. And then, of course, building a new headquarters in France. So I think the commitment to being both global and digital is one that they set it from the start. They've actually kept with it. And, you know, again, it's not like it wasn't, we didn't have to make some hard decisions during the spring of last year. We did, like many other institutions, we had to cut staff, we had to furlough staff. It's not that we didn't go through a hard period. I just think we kept with the plans that we had set out from the beginning. And doing business digitally, virtually, has to be our future. We have been theater for so long, attending an evening sale where the big ticket items sell, where you're sitting next to someone else and you've got 1,200 people in a room bidding and the excitement of that. I just don't know that that's coming back in that form. So we have to be able to offer the digital alternative that is you know, equally exciting. It's incredible to think about that change, the big event, the pressing of the flesh and being in the presence of works of art. You're saying you're not expecting that to return in the same way. No, I love that more than anybody. I still, my heart still flutters when I, when I get into an auction. I think it's our job to create something exciting. How about this? I'm always amazed that we are going through these changes and we are such an old organization. So we've been around for so long. The people who are involved in the market who came to those sales are still involved in the market and it's bringing them that comfort level, the ease of use. There's so much more I can see about this object on my screen. I want to stand in front of it in person and I'll make arrangements to do that. I'll send an advisor to go and look at it, but there's a whole lot that I can do with comfort and with confidence on my screen. And that I think is our job at the moment. I think we're doing it. I think we've just scratched the surface being able to experience a work of art on screen so you have confidence purchasing it is in part what we have to do. We'll create theater in other ways and we're leaning heavily into different forms of content. We also want to convene people again. You know, I think everybody is trying to understand, well, how do we have people at a dinner table and at an exhibition and in a sale room in a way that doesn't feel like the old days, feels exciting, feels new, feels safe? We're still grappling with all those issues too. Speaking of the new days, you're collaborating with the digital artist Pac on the first sale of non-fungible tokens or NFTs. Can you help our listeners understand what NFTs are and how it is that they became an acceptable phenomenon almost overnight? 
I mean, I can scratch the, the surface on this, but know that we are intensively looking at this because this is a market that's growing quickly, kind of too quickly from our view. So we're also waiting for a bubble. But I will say there's a marketplace that looks to have grown up in the last three years, call it. You get inversions of an investment in cryptocurrency and these marketplaces where you could only pay in cryptocurrency. And these marketplaces were growing up that I think not everyone in the art world was paying attention to. And I think that's probably an understatement. So you get to a point where there is sort of a parallel between the investment in cryptocurrency and the appetite for trading an asset. And that asset is one of these visible assets, the, the non-fungible tokens, which confuse me, but here's my understanding of it. The token itself, which lives with the object, gives you, the buyer, the right to resell that object. Anyone else can look at your image. And in fact, the copyright rules and regulations get really watery around NFTs. And we're all still learning about this. But there is a huge appetite to be trading in this visual asset. And again, these few marketplaces that have existed are now exploding. As we look at the price increase, even over, certainly in the last three months, but call it in the last six months, it's fast, it's too fast, it feels inflated to us. So we are absolutely getting into this in a way that makes sense for Sotheby's. We will be creating partnerships yes, with the artist pack, but also with other artists and doing this in a way that invites all of our buyers to participate. So you can pay in regular currency, you can pay in cryptocurrency, but also kind of looking at the market, trying not to make any predictions and trying not to fuel what would be just a sort of straight investment platform. The topic of the empty sale room or the online sale room replacing it brings me to art museums, which is how we met when you were focused primarily on working with museums as clients. These are institutions that are going through, obviously, enormous change, and they often present and collect temporary experiences while private collectors and corporations that you work with often default to what used to be called a quest for wall power. Do you foresee that divide becoming more pronounced between museums and other kinds of collectors? It's such a good question because right now so much of the conversation, and I, I don't know if you had an opportunity to hear any of that conference last week that was organized by Syracuse. So much of the, of the questions are centering around what's my purpose as an institution? Of course, I'm the steward for the works that I have on the wall, but before that, I'm serving my community. And yes, we hear that in it's important. It can also sound trite, and I don't mean it to sound that way at all, but it does then beg the question, what's more important, the object or the audience? Am I protecting this object at the expense of being able to be relevant to my audience? And I think that's a question that you're going to hear again and again and again, especially as museums make decisions in a time when AMD has loosened guidelines and their ability to serve their communities, their audiences, their constituents has been hampered because operating budgets are turned on their heads. So do I see them changing the way they collect? I don't know. Do I see them looking at what they need to protect in their collection? Absolutely. So of course, museums are all making the good responsible decisions to keep works that are 
core to who they are as institutions, but also recognizing that paying salaries and caring for art is also what they do. So, you know, that to me is a, is a topic that I feel needs to be discussed more in the open. I was very struck and I listened to a lot of the, the Syracuse conversations and I was very struck by how few of these dialogues take place outside of the sort of organizations that are that are very centric to museums like AMD or the regional conferences or AMC. Really, the conversations with the attorneys general and with different museum directors surfacing these issues, we need to hear more of these out loud because guess what? Your audiences who you are serving, museums are not hearing this and they need to hear it. It's such a tangle, Nina. I come from museums that have a commitment to collections leavened by a series of tax policies that are 100 years old, as wasn't much discussed in Syracuse, have to do with the Financial Accounting Standards Board and the risks of monetizing collections with respect to tax deductibility and with respect, honestly, to the foresight of trustees in thinking about their collections as an educational resource, full stop, rather than as an asset class. So. It's a troubling topic for some of us who are not prone to think of collections as assets. And there are reasons for that that are regulatory. So I would be lying to you if I told you that I understand all of FASB's directions. I, of course, understand the first concept. I I will say this. What I am hearing is a huge split. Not Not a, oh, there are a few people who want to do this and a few people who don't. Like a very central deep down split in how different museum leaders feel about this topic. When everything turned around and we we're all in lockdown last spring and I got a call from AMD that they were going to be loosening the guidelines. They wanted to make sure I understood on behalf of Sotheby's because I sort of centralize our work with museums. I remember making lots of calls to different museum leaders to understand how they felt about it. And at that time, there was uncertainty, but still a split. And I was surprised and I didn't really understand. And over the past year, I've had so many conversations with different institutions, and I've never experienced such a violent divide mm-hmm. where, on the one hand, one museum director will say, My trustees and I would absolutely never go in that direction. And others who say, how can you not be thinking about these issues when, again, you're having to make decisions about whether to keep your staff or not? I'm not here to be stewarding a museum in one direction or the other. I'm, I'm amazed at the lack of consistency. And I sometimes think, and you know, Ann Pasternak said something about this during her panel, we do need more clarity. We need more discussion over this. On the one hand, it's very important to leave the interpretation of these issues, whether it's tax and accounting, but much more definition of care of the collection. We need to leave that responsibly to the institutions, but can we have a little bit more guidance around it? That I think is really important because when you have such a lack of direction, these museums are going in wildly different directions in terms of their view of what is responsible stewardship or not. And that tells me that leadership needs to be a bit stronger. And I don't want to be opinionated, but I am, I am struck by how little, again, public conversation there is around this. I mean, I think the divide broadly is that 
leaders of encyclopedic museums who are art historians and think about the entire 5,000 years of art history look at the world one way, and that includes university museums. And then leaders who are either contemporary specialists or who lead modern and contemporary museums look at it a different way. I think that's the largest source of the divide. In your world, a lot of the trading, of course, happens with modern and contemporary. It dominates the market in so many ways. And that, of course, is also where trustees collect, and that's where money is to be found. And so it's a much livelier topic for that kind of institution, I think. Yeah, of course, the the financial opportunities are in the modern and contemporary. You're absolutely right about that. What's interesting is, is we're seeing museums are and will continue to be active and refine their collections in ways because that's how collections stay alive and breathing and they should always be refined on the edges and and where they can be improved. To me, it's very interesting. There are more museums looking at this issue than I've ever seen. And I've also not seen one act quickly or iris, you know, without great thoughtfulness behind it and making you know, sort of informed decisions that I have not seen. And leading collectors are watching this too, because in the past, the playbook was somebody builds a great collection and then they give it to a museum. And that's 80 to 90% of museum acquisitions. Now they're looking at museums and saying, well, if they're just going to sell it, maybe I should sell it with Sotheby's or your competitors, or I should build my own museum. What kinds of conversations might collectors have in your view, or have you had any about this with them? The conversations are on one point that you said, there are more collectors thinking about having their own institutions as a way to establish their legacy and also, you know, keep the collection together in perpetuity by making it a foundation and open to the public. That is, as you say, a topic that has grown. I mean, it's grown over the last two decades and it has, it's really taken on greater life, I think, internationally, meaning outside of the U.S., um, recently. So we're, we're seeing more of that. On the flip side, when what we see among philanthropists is a greater awareness of, if I'm going to give my collection, then I want to be clear, and the museum is saying the same thing about whether or not my collection is restricted. So I'm going to give it and be clear that these works can never be sold. So that need for clarity and, and what that happens on the flip side, that the museums need to be clear about whether where they're comfortable with that. Because what happens is you then have collections that can't be moved. And in many cases, that is, if it's a thoughtful decision, that's really productive. And we've seen that in so many different great sort of game-changing gifts among our country's institutions. But it's certainly the question that donors should be thinking about and that institutions are thinking about where and when is it appropriate to give a gift with restrictions it protects you it allows you to you know have the confidence that your gift will not then be monetized later and then also open the door for well maybe some gifts should be given so that the museum can monetize them so i I think that there's a whole lot of directions that haven't been pursued entirely to help to mitigate the concerns over giving gifts and donor issues. What we've covered today is that your arena in the art world is among the few that has managed through the pandemic. Nina, thank you so much for making time today to join Artscoping. Thank you for having me, Max. 
We've been speaking today with Nina Del Rio, Vice Chairman Americas at Sotheby's. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping. If you liked what you heard, leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts, which helps other listeners find their way to us.